Hello and welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. And as I like to say, I have a couple of very special guests today. You may or may not recall that I am a member of an organization called the Silicon Guild, which is essentially a not-so-secret society of the world's most prominent nonfiction authors. And I am very pleased today to be joined by two of these authors to talk about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, tabletop role-playing games. So I'll give a brief introduction to the two fine gentlemen I have on the call today, and then I'll let them expand a little bit. First up is my old business school classmate and friend, Franz Johansson, the author of The Medici Effect and The Click Moment. Franz plays Dungeons and Dragons growing up with his friends in Sweden, still Dungeon Masters games via Zoom during the pandemic. You'll be hearing more about that later on. Franz and I have never played together, but someday it will happen. We were planning on doing something for a business school reunion this year. Unfortunately, it was canceled, but it will still happen. And France, of course, works primarily in the area of how diversity drives innovation. And we'll talk a little bit about innovation and tabletop role-playing games as well. We're also joined by our dear Silicon Guild colleague, Tim Harford. You may know him from the United Kingdom, where he is the undercover economist. And I recently learned, i.e. the 15 minutes ago when I was looking up his Wikipedia page, that Tim is also an Order of the British Empire, which I think makes him a knight of some kind. And Tim, in addition to his many books, is also, as they say in the UK, a presenter on television. We call it a host, but there they call it a presenter. And so has also been a lifelong player of tabletop role-playing games. So Franz and Tim, thank you so much. And I'm so glad to have you guys here. Which of you wants to correct whatever errors I've introduced in introducing you? <laughs> yeah, I wish Tim, I, I wish I was a knight, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like level zero knight. I think maybe level minus one knight. But that that would be a cool character class. <laughs> You're closer to a paladin. Is that what uh, what uh, <laughs> Prince oh, yeah. bestowed upon you? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I'm definitely lawful good for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And we'll definitely talk about the alignment systems as well, because those have actually become very popular here. Uh, but, you know, since you guys are not going to say any more about your many accomplishments, no doubt you're embarrassed by how accomplished you are. Maybe instead, what I can get each of you to do is to talk about your personal history with tabletop role-playing games, just so that it's possible so everyone knows. So, Tim, why don't you cover first, because France and I are both going to talk primarily about Dungeons & Dragons, but you are actually from a rival tribe, if you will. Yeah, well, it's important to maintain standards of diversity, right? So, you know, we, we play all kinds of role-playing games here. So I started role-playing when I was 12, which is um, 35 years ago, and I was introduced to a game called Tunnels & Trolls, which was one of the, the first imitators of Dungeons and Dragons to, to come up. Um, it's great fun. I've just been playing it with my nine-year-old son recently. It's silly in all kinds of ways, but it's, it's, a, it's a good fun game. And one of the great things about it is that you can play by yourself, which uh, of course loses a lot of the fun of role-playing games. But if you're a 12-year-old kid and none of your friends play, then the capacity for solo play is, is great. And then when I was... I guess 16, I encountered GURPS, the generic universal role-playing system. Steve Jackson. Yeah, Steve, actually there, was, there are two Steve Jacksons. So that's the US Steve Jackson. We have, we have a UK Steve Jackson as well who did the fighting fantasy books. But I've been playing GURPS now, uh, so for what, 30 years. And some of 
I mean, I played a game, not of GURPS, but I played a game three days ago with a friend who I met 30 years ago, several friends actually, who I met 30 years ago. So one of the things for me about role-playing has been those long friendships. And the, the only other cool thing I would say is that um, when I was a student, uh, a fellow student of mine encouraged me to reach out to some of the game designers I ad admire, one in particular, and just interview them for the student role-playing uh, fanzine. And I did that. I, I, I contacted Dave Morris, who was the designer of a game I mm. think is absolutely great. And Dave and I have been friends ever since. And it was just a, I mean, it was a wonderfully generous act of him to say, yeah, sure, I'm happy to talk to a student. But it was a, an indication as well of the way that role-playing allows you to, to make connections with people and to stay friends with people who you know, ordinarily you might not bump into at all. So that's my history with role-playing. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> although Dungeons & Dragons has featured prominently, uh, it didn't really start there. I, I, um, I, I grew up in Sweden. They had a game called, if you translate it, uh, Dragons and Demons, basically, which is really RuneQuest. It was RuneQuest ported uh, to Sweden. And then they created an, another version of that. Uh, so played that for many years, then um, played a mix of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, both basic and advanced, uh, back to the Swedish system for many years. And then it all ended when, you know, life sort of took on, but returned to it maybe some 10 15 years ago, and now it was a mix of rules from Dungeons and Dragons, rules from the Swedish system, and, and things that we made up on our own. I worked with a good friend of mine, statistician, to create a, a, um, a fighting system where a lot of the fighting could sort of be resolved through much fewer dice rolls, basically. You just kind of added all, a lot of things up, and we created effectively a 60-sided die. Uh, which, <laughs> which sort of captured a variety of interactions that could occur. Um, so we could sort of focus on what we felt was increasingly important over the years, which is the actual role-playing part, as opposed to the intricacies of, um, of fighting systems. And now, again, we actually, as I started up during the pandemic, we've switched over to a system called Dungeon World, which I love. It is a, a, a system that really forces choice uh, upon both the dungeon master, the players, everything is about forward motion, propelling action forward. Um, so a number of different systems, uh, a lot of different, um, a lot of different memories from each of them. Very good. And I'll give my own personal history as well. So like you, I got hooked in my childhood. What happened was my older sister, who's four and a half years older than me, had a birthday party slash sleepover. And one of her friends had brought the basic set of Dungeons and Dragons over and had us all play. And I was enlisted to play, even though I was much, much younger. And then I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. And so I received the basic set in the purple box with the yellow dice that my dog promptly chewed up. <laughs> and then over time, accumulated most of the books of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which is, of course probably the OG, if you will. So I have copies of these classic books like Deities and Demigods. Mm -hmm. I even bought a copy of Legends and Lore, which is the version of Deities and Demigods that has the uh, unlicensed characters from Elric of Melnibone and all these other things in it that were later removed. 
And so I, I actually didn't get a chance to play very much. I got to play very little. I had to spend most of my time reading the rule books and really understanding things through the rule books, many of which I credit for expanding my vocabulary and allowing me to do well in school. And the other interesting string, so, you know, this is something where uh, it's the 1980s, and so I had all these books, and I also picked up other role-playing systems. I remember GURPS, so I had that. I also had a couple of licensed products. So there's an original uh, giant robot fighting game called Mechton that was out there. There was both Mechton and Mechton 2. I had a number of the Palladium rule books for the Robotech licensed IP, which those of you who are anime fans may know is primarily Macross, but a couple of other things mixed in. So I definitely had a lot of these things. And on the tactical side, I also have a copy of Starfleet Battles, the Star Trek mm. combat game, mm. which has zero role playing and is all accounting. It's perfect <laughs> if you want to go work for an accounting firm someday. <laughs> but the string that really sort of ties this together is then I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was at Stanford, I did a lot of improvisational comedy. And so I was involved, took the improv comedy class, was involved in an improvisational comedy group for all my years at Stanford, even directed it for a bit uh, one year. So got to perform at college comedy festivals and everything like that. And really, I think that the thing that most people don't realize is that tabletop role-playing games are really just an extremely structured form of improvisational performance. And I right. think that that role-playing element, which you so correctly highlighted, Franz, is a big part of what's going on. And then fortunately for me, a uh, number of years ago, one of my friends, Ben Narison, a venture capitalist who's now with NEA, said, hey, you know, I would like to play Dungeons and Dragons with my son now that he's a teenager. Would you be willing to join in? And so we've been playing now for four or five years, and I dungeon master part of the time as well. And that got me into the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, which has seen a gigantic renaissance. And so that brings us to the world we live in today, where role-playing is cool. Actors like Joe Manganiello uh, run around with his own clothing line based on Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, the, uh, uh, the great Vin Diesel even managed to have a movie made about his childhood Dungeons and Dragons character called The, the Last Witch Hunter. The opening scene of Stranger Things is Dungeons exactly. and Dragons. I mean, once, once you get to the kids, it's... We're, we're, we're cool again, okay? <laughs> <laughs> again, we are always cool. But again, let's emphasize this is not limited to Dungeons and Dragons. Role-playing in general is having a That's massive right. renaissance across many different systems. And, and I guess See, the first question would be, why do we think this is? What's, about, what's going on in this moment that's causing more people to do this? You know, Very good question. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say that um, what's happened is that people that started out in the 80s playing these, these games and, and 90s have now it, gotten to a place where they have achieved quite a bit of success. Did I lose you there for a second? Just briefly, but the audio never yeah. cut out. <laughs> got it. Um, they have achieved uh, a certain level of success. You, you met, I mean, you got Leonardo DiCaprio, you got uh, Vin Diesel, you, you have you have a whole bunch of folks that can actually now speak to this in a way that was impossible when we were younger. Uh, and so it, it's just another layer of people that are able to articulate why it matters so much to them. Why did we become who we are? I credit 
role-playing games a tremendous amount in that journey. I mean, when somebody asked me, <clears throat> somebody asked me, well, how are you, uh, how, how did you get to where you are on stage? I do a lot of speaking engagements uh, and keynotes on, 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 on stages. And I, at one point or another in that conversation, I'm going to bring up Dungeons and Dragons. I'm going to bring up role-playing games. I'm going to talk about what it meant to, to actually think on your feet, what it meant to, to, uh, to make decisions on the fly. And so I think that generation is now a, oh, we're all adults. We're all, we're all, we're all, we're all sort of have achieved things that was impossible when we were 16, 17. And, and so the conversation has changed. I think that's one reason. I think you're probably right that there is this intergenerational echo going on. Like the, the, the teenage nerds are, are no longer teenagers. We're, we're, you know, the Gen Xs are now running the world. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, and I do find it very encouraging because, I mean, just listening to, to Chris and Franz, to both of you describe your experience with these games, imagine if we were talking about Monopoly uh, or, even, or even a good board game like Settlers uh, or Dominion or something <laughs> like that. But okay, just imagine we were talking about Monopoly and the weirdness of France going, oh yeah, so I was playing, I was playing Monopoly, but I decided I was going to mash it up with, with Scrabble. And then, so we had kind of Scrabble and Monopoly together and that seemed more fun. People would be saying, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? But to a role player, the idea of combining a couple of systems, mixing them up ma makes perfect sense. And Chris, the idea that, the, that it could be so rich that you could simultaneously just spend a whole bunch of time in your room just reading the rules over and over yes. again. I mean, that does not happen with Monopoly. But then also you, could, you can connect it to your improv comedy practice. And th these are very, very rich. Um, it's a very rich form that encourages people to take control, to hack it about, to use it in all kinds of different ways. And, I, and I'm, I'm so glad that it is having that renaissance because I did worry that it was slightly being squeezed out by more prepackaged forms of culture like, you know, like box sets and movies. And World of Warcraft, for example. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing is I do think about the cultural changes that have occurred. Like, for example, we mentioned having people having grown up with role-playing games now running the world. It's right. I mean, it, just imagine if in the 1970s and 1980s, Chuck, Bron Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson was like, I'm a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan. Like, it's unimaginable. And here we yeah. see big, tough, sex symbol, action hero type saying, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I've got my clothing line. That's part of it. People who grew up in a certain way with this, loving it, have now carried it with them. But the other thing you said is it really is a key element of fan culture, right? If you think about fandom, sure. there are a couple of touchstones, tabletop role-playing games, The Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, Star Wars. These are really the things that have built the concept of fandom more so than almost any other genre. And I think that one of the big differences with role-playing games today is the massive amount of content that's available. You are no longer a lonely kid with just a couple of rule books to keep you company. Now, if I wanted to, I could spend every single waking moment watching Dungeons and Dragons channels on YouTube, watching live plays, listening to podcasts, participating in online forums. And frankly, you know, one of the things I do now is I will actually regularly read forums and things like that just to get ideas, you know, both mm -hmm. from a storytelling perspective and from a mechanical perspective. And that was never possible before. So I feel like the internet, ironically enough, 
has supercharged this fit, traditionally face-to-face, low-tech, zero computerization. At, oh, it's, uh, it's no contest because, <clears throat> excuse me, when, uh, when I'm, uh, if I had to plan for a session, uh, and let's say that as part of that, this has happened recently, uh, about two months ago, they are going to be entering some sort of castle. In the past, well, what were my options, really? I mean, I had to sit down. I had to draw this castle. I had to try to figure out what was going on inside this castle. There's a lot of planning. Now I'm like, well, I don't have the time. Google, uh, map, castle, X, Y, Z, boom. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I have a choice or less. Two minutes later, I have a, have a map of a castle. Now I'm way ahead. And, um, and, and so, so it, it, it's like there's an extension, it's a massive wealth of knowledge that sort of an inspiration that you tap into at a moment's notice, which is really what you have to do as a dungeon master, particularly, I mean, play maybe a little bit differently, but as a dungeon master, where you're trying to set up the day's game, uh, but you still stretch for time. Um, I would spend many hours, sometimes 10 hours planning for a single session when I was a kid. I obviously don't have that amount of time now, but I can actually get away with spending maybe 30 minutes to do it today, less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, the, the ability to connect as well with, with other people who want to play. Yeah. I mean, even with, with board games, I mean, I'm a board gamer as well. It's great fun. It's, I think it's much less creative, but I, I love board games. Um, I wrote a piece for the Financial Times maybe uh, 10 or 12 years ago now. And I went to Essen, the great board games convention at, at, at Essen. And the question I had for everybody is, are, are you not worried that you're going to be wiped out by computer games? And th- they all said, no, no, abs- it's absolutely fine. And one of the things that was going on was that it was just easier and easier for people to learn about the games, to meet other people, the, that process, that quite painful process of opening the box and figuring out how it works. You just, there's somebody on YouTube will explain mm. the game in five minutes and uh, you can get game reviews. You can find out about good games. So there's this, there's this tremendous support, I think, for playing these games, which, I mean, they can be quite demanding. When you, uh, we, if you remember the process of trying to make these things work in the, in the 1980s, very often you would, you would open a box, a role-playing game, and you'd be going, what, what even is this? How does it work? What? And I, I pretend to, and I, I don't, but what? There's no doubt now about how to, how to play these games and the different ways in which you could play these games. Yeah, and I think that this is one of those things, right? The analogy I use is uh, I play a lot of sports, uh, American sports I'm very familiar with, basketball, baseball, football. Basically, I only play basketball at this point, but I'm familiar with all the sports. And with all these sports, we know the rules. Same for football uh, in, across, around the world, which you know is soccer in the United States. Everyone kind of knows the rules. Did they learn the rules by reading a rule book? No. They learned it by watching other people playing. And historically, you couldn't do that, but now thanks to the internet, you can. And so people are learning in a more natural way than we had to go through as kids. So yeah. I was keen to ask both of you guys about this, the, the process of creativity that's just inherent in role-playing games. I mean, we, we've already heard it. And I remember Fran sort of saying, oh, yeah, I just hacked together these two systems and then we invented our own system. That seems to be totally natural. Um, I mean, that, I think, was in... Uh, role-playing games from the start. I've just been reading a really interesting, really thick, detailed history of Dungeons and Dragons. 
um, called Playing at the World by John Peterson. I mean, it's 720 pages long, so it's not <laughs> one, but it's, it's amazingly well-researched. And Peterson describes the war game culture of the time. And there were a couple of different things going on. There was this idea that you would, for a war game, you wouldn't just play on a board. You would create your own terrain, you'd sculpt your own miniatures, mm. you'd do a lot of research. And, and so there was this idea that you would put a lot of creativity in yourself. That was implicit. Um, but the other thing was that people would just hack together war games rules. They'd take some rules that they liked, but oh yeah, but that's for kind of late Napoleonic and it doesn't really work for early Napoleonic. So I'm going to do some early Napoleonic. And so they would change it and, that, and share rules. So that was always there in the culture. But what I think is really fascinating is that as that evolved into Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, we somehow kept hold of this idea. Not, I mean, not everybody plays like this, but that you could adjust the game, adapt the game, play however you like. And even, even somebody who is playing in the, I would say the least creative way possible, that they're sticking to the rules precisely, they're buying a pre-generated module, they're reading the text out of the module. Um, even that person is engaging in a lot more imagination and a lot more creativity than almost all of the everyday activities that we engage in. I think that's just fascinating. I, I agree. And, you know, it, it isn't just in the, in the design of the systems, et cetera, although, which is what you talked about, where that plays out in a big way. But in the game itself, you know, whether you're a player or whether you're the dungeon master, you're, you're engaging in a creative act of, of literally at that moment building a story, right? So choices are made. Um, they're, not, they're not scripted out. And, and here, there's, there's, there's two areas of creativity that I've seen um, have been huge for, for me today that, that, that still sort of echoes today. The first one is, <laughs> when I, as a dungeon master, am trying to get players to get to a particular point without them feeling like they were forced to that point. So what, what does that mean? It, it, you know, you could set up a scenario and, um, and, uh, and then, the, 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 you know, you engage in that scenario. Do you enter the door? Do you fight the monster? What do you do? But oftentimes when we were playing, I would fly over to Sweden, actually, and I would spend three, four days there. And that would mean that I have to actually plan out enough stuff, enough content for that, which meant that I needed to have, I need to have at least some understanding of where the plot was moving. Mm -hmm. But at all times that I want to make sure that everybody felt like they had choices, right? So it wasn't like it was pre-railroaded or, or, or preordained. Well, that takes a lot of creativity. How do you, how do you, how do you ensure that you create this um, feeling of a lot of choice, but in what was actually happening is that one way or another, you're still ending up taking the story where I could plan and predict it. Um, it. It has added a whole different layer of how to think about how to move teams to a particular place, right? How do you, how do you, how do you progress almost anything in a way that, in a way that you, you, you have a general direction, but you don't have the specifics figured out. Um, so that's anyway, one, one unexpected area of creativity besides all of the sort of storytelling that happens on a minute by minute basis when you're, when you're playing. And from a sort of formal perspective, if I were to bring in the formal improvisation training, this is where the concept that many people have heard of comes in, which is the concept of yes and, and many people have heard the term yes and they don't truly understand what it means. Yes and is important because of what it means is you're collaborating, you're building on other people. But the corollary is also important. Yes, and is designed to prevent what we call blocking, which is when someone says, 
And so we do this. And then somebody says, no, you don't. Or no, that doesn't work. Right? Blocking is death to improvisation. And yet most of our world around us is all about blocking. Let's go talk to legal. Let's go talk to compliance. <laughs> we have a blocking-based world. And so having that yes and culture within improvisation, but then also even more broadly within tabletop role-playing games is so important. And one of the things I give credit to Wizards of the Coast for, which is the company that now owns the Dungeons and Dragons IP, <laughs> is their promotion of what they call the rule of fun and the rule of cool. Yes. Which is, you know, as a dungeon master, your job is not to be an umpire or a judge to administer balls and strikes or to interpret a series of, of laws. Right. At the end of the day, you're at the table. Your job is to do what's going to be fun and what's going to be cool. And if that means that, you know, you end up in a situation where you're not sure how things apply make the choice that's going to be fun or cool. And that is a great definition of entrepreneurship and yeah. innovation and, and creativity. And leadership in general, I think. I mean, you know, uh, are, you, are we having fun? Are we progressing? Progress matters tremendously. Um, I think it prepares people uh, to become entrepreneurs in that way, looking for possibilities rather than the obstacles. I was, I was going to ask, where else in the modern world do we see this level of, of creativity demanded of people just absolutely routinely as a, as a requirement for participation? You can't, even, you can't even make sense of this game unless you're willing to constantly be creative and constantly be imaginative. And well, you've given me one answer, which is entrepreneurship requires that level of creativity. But I'm, I don't think there are many others. Maybe I'm missing something obvious, but so much of, of what we do in modern life is quite prepackaged. It's quite scripted. Um, actually, one of the things I was wrestling with in a book I wrote a few years ago called Messy, which has a chapter on improv, was how, may, how much we try to control, we try to prescript, uh, because we're afraid of what happens when we don't quite know how it's all going to work out. Um, I just think it's tremendous training to get people to have confidence that even, if, even though they can't quite see their way to, to the end point, they can step forward, they've got colleagues, and you know, it, it'll be all right. They'll figure it out. I, I think that entrepreneurship is one of those areas. What, what role-playing games do is speed up the iteration of that, right? I mean, in one evening, there may have been five, six, seven different types of highly creative choices. Uh, and in, in the microwave, there could be hundreds of them that are played out that evening. I mean, it, it, that intensity of it, even when it comes to online, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at uh, worlds that have been created and the choices that are made within it. You're tightly, tightly bound, I mean, completely constrained. Uh, and so it's not the same as what you're actually able to pull off when you get together as people, where the creativity is effectively boundless. Yeah. And one of the things that I think really plays a role in this, and this applies to video games as well, is that when you do something, you get feedback immediately. Right? Yes. I think that learning happens because of feedback. And the real world, life is messy, and we try something, and we may not know whether it's working or not for weeks or months. But in the role-playing game or in a video game, you get feedback immediately. And it's even more powerful in the role-playing game because you're getting both feedback 
and reinforcement from your fellow players. Right? It's yeah. a social activity. It's not just, oh, I tried this and it worked. It's, I tried this. Oh, oh, I want to somersault over that table and grab that lamp and smash it over the bad guy's head. <laughs> and the dungeon master says, oh, okay, well, that's an athletics roll. You'll need to roll a 16 or above. And you roll it and you get 17. And everyone cheers like, oh, my God, that was so awesome, friends. I can't believe you did that. And there you've got the feedback, you've got the learning, you've got the social reinforcement that makes it so powerful. And it's also safe. Failure is safe. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if something doesn't quite work, no big deal. We just move on. What it also does is give you a more intuitive understanding of statistics. Like, what does it mean when you have a 5% chance of succeeding or failing? Well, I mean, it's just an abstract number, really. But one out of 20 on a D20? That's a very real thing. Like if after a while, after you've rolled enough of those, you're like, you know, actually, you know, it's, it can happen, but it's, um, but if it does, I, I will be extremely excited about it. Like this is a, a, a one of those sort of critical, critical um, injury list roles, for instance, that might, might impact us. Where do we get that type of extremely rapid feedback on, on statistical probabilities? It doesn't really happen very often. Maybe if you're a really good poker player, you can be, you can be sort of, th- because you're thinking statistically. But, but otherwise, it's, um, um, it doesn't show up very often. No. I mean, poker poker is, the, is, is the most obvious example, but yeah, you're right. You don't get it very often. I remember after the... Um, presidential election uh clinton versus trump and uh 538 the uh the forecasting and analysis website was saying i think that trump had a i can't remember 27 percent chance of winning and he won and people said well you got that one wrong <laughs> and i think as a role player i can tell you 27 percent that happens a lot it really happens it a lot. it exactly. really does and just the fact that you know, oh, 5% chance. Again, it's funny. I think it's a brilliant insight, France, because I'm like, 5% chance, I sort of don't have an emotional reaction to it, right? It's like, oh, does it have a 5% chance? And yet if I said, okay, I need to hit a 20 on this roll, I'm like, holy sh- holy crap, I know exactly how difficult it is. Or in the case of President Trump, it's like, oh, he had a 30% chance of, of winning the election. Okay, so if he rolls... 14 or above on this D20, he wins the election. You're like, oh my God, now I'm terrified. (laughs) (laughs) And that is, again, this visceral and emotional understanding. I do want to emphasize and underscore, I think a theme, a through line throughout this is the emotional engagement because these games are emotionally engaging. It's not just a purely intellectual exercise. There's the social element of it, but also there's the identification Right. When you were playing, you talked about the, Tim, the, the origins of these games in wargaming and things like Chainmail, which was a set of rules for combat that Gary Gygax eventually merged into and created Dungeons and Dragons on top of. And when you're playing a war game, you never think to yourself, I take that hill, I move into position, I fire. And yet at the same time, I hear character, I hear players all the time take on the role of their characters and say, I pull out my bow and I yeah. take a shot at that ogre. Or I'm going to cast this. And the identification with the player creates a level of emotional involvement that normal games do not have. Yeah, it's, yeah I go, Tim. Well, I, I was going to say the, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the, 
you, you mentioned Chainmail and Gary Gygax, but, um, or is it Gygax? I can never remember. It's Gygax, but don't worry. He's, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's passed away now, so yeah. he'll well, take it either way. All the, more, all the more reason to get his name right. But um, <laughs> So Gygax and, and David Arneson are, are the ones who are generally credited with creating this. But as with so many innovations, there are all of these interesting precursors. So, so one is um, the, the Prussian army had this tradition of Kriegspiel, which is, means sort of free play or war play, um, uh, war games, I guess, is Kriegspiel. Um, but what's interesting about Kriegspiel is they were very rules light. You had a referee. And the referee would use his or her judgment to arbitrate what was going on. And this was like a military training thing. It was a serious uh, business for training Prussian officers. But that tradition of, of the idea of, well, you could try anything and you don't necessarily need to have a rule. You just need to have somebody with judgment who's going to make the call. That's a really key insight that just gets carried forward a hundred years and then pops up again. And it pops up again in a, in a game being run by a guy called David Wesley called uh, Brownstein. And, and the thing about Br Brownstein was a war game, but the thing about Brownstein is he had loads and loads of people wanting to play this war game. So he would say, well, okay, you can, be, um, you can be the head teacher in the school of this place, or you can be the local baron. So he was giving people these individual roles and in encouraging them to self-identify. And he regarded it as a complete failure because I don't think they even got to have a battle. It was supposed to be like a bat the battle of this town, Braunstein. And the battle never happened, but everybody loved it. And, and uh, Dave Arneson and, and uh, Gary Gygax got to hear of this. And so the idea of, of doing a Braunstein then spread to the wargaming community. But David Wesley's not a, you know, I don't think it would be right to say he invented Dungeons and Dragons because he didn't. Um, but he certainly helped, create, you know, set the, you know, plant a seed that, that grew. And so much innovation is like that, you know, that has many parents. Uh, uh, and even with the early history of Dungeons and Dragons, I do not know it nearly as well. I definitely need to read this book, but many of the innovations were homebrew innovations, right? This, close, this concept of homebrew, which really ties in closely with the technology and startup culture, is always something that has been there in the background. And so people would create variations of the rules. They would say, well, Gary, you didn't cover this, and I'm going to create this and publish it in my own zine. And many of these rules eventually made it back into the main branch. It was almost like an open source piece of software in that sense. Absolutely. I think what's also interesting when you, when you have loose rules like that, right? And then you combine it with your point around emotion and how, <clears throat> how we identify is that it allows players and, and, and dungeon masters, all, like, all the participants to experiment on who they are. So for instance, um, let's say that um, you find yourself to be a, a person that um, wants to be perhaps a bit more decisive in who you are. And I'm talking about in, in real life, in, as a, as a, in, at work. But how do you do that? How do you game that out? Well, actually, uh, role-playing games provide a great place for you to try that out you can't be and, and i'm not talking about it in a way that you just want to get something off your chest and i and now i'm, I'm good it's I'm, I'm talking about you can you can experiment you could try different approaches my character here is decisive. it's just my character it's not me um the same way that you then could try to be 
uh, maybe uh, more um, uh, compassionate, or you could, I mean, you could switch up everything. You could switch up your gender. You could switch up your, of course, a lot of this is happening online uh, as well. But here it is deeper because you are actually trying to identify with this person. You're making choices as this person. I think it just goes much deeper when you're playing it out that way. Now, this is an interesting question. Go ahead. I was was just going to say specifically on that, I remember as a teenager deciding to play, I can't remember why I decided this, but I decided to play a character who was blind. She couldn't see at all. And so I started with that idea. And then I thought, well, I don't know what it's like to not be able to see. So I kind of wrapped this, this towel around my head so I couldn't see anything. And I tried to walk around the house, run myself a bath, just do some stuff, being completely unable to see. And of course, it's a very limited exercise in empathy. It doesn't really tell me what it's like to live like that and what you can and can't do. But I think, you know, I was a 15-year-old boy and I'm trying to imagine being a a blind 25-year-old woman and trying to understand what that's like, just because I thought it would be interesting for the game, not out of some great project of self-improvement or empathy and i just think it's interesting that role-playing just invites that step of empathy and imagining yourself to be somebody else completely naturally now one of the things that i'm now interested in this is going to be one of the more uh, role-playing intensive things is one of the concepts that has come out of dungeons and dragons it is used in a lot of other systems and it's just part of popular culture now is the notion of alignment you can be lawful, you could be neutral, you could be chaotic, you can be good, you could be neutral, you can be evil. And so you, ha- you heard earlier, we're talking about being lawful good or chaotic neutral or what have you. So the question I have for you is, when you play characters, is there a particular alignment that you play or are there different alignments that you try on for size? Well, <clears throat> um... And this is a player. Obviously, as a dungeon master, you have to simulate people of all alignments. I think that the way our group has been addressing this question is a little bit about how, what type of game are we looking for as a group? So, um, uh, you know, it is a, whenever you have, let's say everybody is chaotic in a a group. it's a very special type of game that you're playing in that case. I mean, everybody is really trying to upend things. Uh, is there's a lot of uh, one-on-ones, you know, breakouts. Uh, got a, well, I'm, I'm plotting against this character. I'm plotting. I mean, uh, do, is that type of game that we want? If we have two hours a day uh, to to do this, uh, do we want to spend half of that time in, on, on one-on-one meetings to really live into this character? So it was, it's been more of a choice that we made as a group to try to figure out where we want, what type of games we want to play. Um, that is not to say that everybody should be, um, uh, is a pre, or this is sort of a, a pre-written rule, but like we just try to figure out um, if we want to have a, a dynamic where it is a lot about the infighting or if it's about taking on common goals. And I think the alignments may, may flow from that. How about you, Tim? So I, because I don't play D&D, the alignment is not generally specified in the games I play, but I, I try to mix it up a bit. Uh, so a couple of characters I've played recently 
um, one of whom was a, um, a Victorian uh, butler. So he was sort of, you'd imagine the kind of the strong man with the big handlebar moustache. Moustache. He's sort of, he's super tough, um, but basically obedient to a, a higher status character. And he's just sort of, he's there along, you know, along to follow orders. Um, and he's a fairly straightforward kind of guy, plays by the rules. But another character I've played is is basically a creepy old sorcerer who carries around kind of dead dead mice in his bag and is, is kind of hitting, you know, hitting without success on younger characters of both genders. Um, and he's just kind of a bit of a, he's just an unsettling guy. Um, and it's, I think it's just interesting to, you want to just explore different things. Um, I mean, what about you, Chris? So that is the interesting question. So I would say that, and this may be my own flaw, because of the identification with characters. When I was young, back in sort of the original era, I would always play characters that were lawful good. And now that I'm older and wiser, I always <laughs> play characters that are neutral good. And I find I cannot bring myself to behave unethically in the game. I just, I, I, maybe I identify too much with the characters, but that's also one of the reasons why I enjoy being a dungeon master because I, once freed from the identification with the character, feel free to slip into any different character and to play evil characters and chaotic characters and things that I would not feel capable of playing if I were a player. And part of it is that thing that you described, France, which is the, the nature of the interaction within the party itself. Right, so there are some people who extol role playing and say, "Well, it's great if my char my character wouldn't do that, my character would do this," and it just causes problems for the group. And I can't do that. I just find that I'm like, "No, we're here as a collaboration. We're here as teammates. We're here to pull for each other." But as a dungeon master, I'm happy to go ahead and throw bombs at everything because I can. I can play an evil villain. I tend to adopt the voice of a corrupt southern sheriff. I always find that entertaining. Uh, but <laughs> I can do things that I couldn't do as a character. Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> I think that the, uh, you know, every group is different. Ours is a very stable group. I mean, some groups have new play players coming and going, new members and so on. I think uh, one can be much, one tends to be sort of, uh, um, well, there, one might think differently about it in those contexts. Um, for us, the, the key now is when at this point in our, in our lives when there's just so many other things going on, we're like, if we get two hours to play, even if it's on Zoom, uh, all of my, all of my um, are in Sweden currently, um, we want to make sure that that is used to the to the max effect. Not to, and, and so that tends to mean that we want more cooperative. We want more sort of a, a what type of challenge do we have to overcome? And and you're right. I'm I'm basically almost always the dungeon master, and I am making life extremely difficult for them either through moral choices or just uh, nature of, of 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 the of the of the enemies. Um, but at least they're facing it as a team, which is where we've chosen to, to land right now, given the time that we have. 
And I will say I have had interesting experiences. There's one game I was playing in where I was not the dungeon master. I was playing with a friend of mine who was the dungeon master. And you could see a clear split within the party. There was at one point where there was a challenge where it's like, well, you need to gather, uh, you need to gather the eyes. Uh, you need to gather 12 pixie eyes. And so we're like, well, we can't do this. These are good That's creatures. That's only six pixies. What's the problem? These are harmless creatures. Well, actually, so the way that the more chaotic and murderous half of the party solved it is they actually cut one eye, scooped one eye out of, the, uh, of 12 pixies. So they said, oh, that right, way, yeah. it's they're more not merciful. dead. They're not blind. They still got, you know, monocular vision. And, but they did it against the objections. Like basically they snuck off and did it because uh, I and another character were like, no, we can't do this. We're supposed to be the heroes. But then and you've got 12 pixies who are really annoyed. That's correct. But that's a great example, right, of different characters taking different approaches. And it was okay in the context of the group because it's like this is not looking to thwart each other. It's just differences in philosophy around how to achieve an end. I think, I think that's fine as long as the group is on the same page about the kind of the meta rules. Like, yeah. is, oh, is it okay that we're playing a game where... People, people could disagree in the game about how to do something. Uh, I think some people find that unsettling. I, my own group would be perfectly happy to have that, that sort of split. But you've got to, you sort of got to agree what the, what the ground rules are before, uh, before you get involved, which is why it's easier if, if you're very familiar with the group, you know what you're doing. And there is that metagame level to all of this, right? There is all the things that happen within the game. And then there's the metagame level behind the game. As you said, group dynamics, who's going to be dungeon master, what kind of experience do we want to have? And people just have to find a way to agree because nobody wants exactly the same things. It's classic. You have some characters, some players who just want to blow stuff up. Then you have other characters who want to be able to give inspirational speeches. And then you have a third character who really wants to figure out a way to solve a puzzle. And you yeah. have to find a way as a dungeon master to solve uh, and meet the needs of all of those people. And, and as a group to, to meet them, kind of to, to meet them together. But even within that, there are surprises. I, we, many years ago, we were playing this um, adventure. It's an adventure module from, uh, from, from the Swedish game that I mentioned earlier. Uh, very famous one. And, um, and in it, we had a three-day marathon session, Friday to Sunday. I'd flown over from, from, from New York, and we were just running this straight through. And one of the, one of the players is a warrior. I mean, he's, he loves his double, double axe. And anytime he can, you know, have blood on it, it's a good day. And throughout all these three days, there was only really one major battle. And he said afterwards, you know, there's only one major battle in this, which I hadn't even reflected upon. It was a lot of mystery solving, characters, et cetera, maybe a minor skirmish. But, and I said, oh, you know what? I forgot about I, You know, I'll think about that next time. I said, no, no. I actually said, everything that we did led up to this major battle, which was at the very end on that Sunday. And it made that battle so much more meaningful, so much more powerful. It just had so, the consequences were just so enormous given everything else that was going on. That, that I, I, I never had more fun in a battle like that. So like what, there is there is there are things that one can sort of that can surprise you on this road as uh, as one tries to figure out what makes a good or bad session. Yeah. Um, I'm still certainly learning. I wanted to ask about whether we should be um, taking advantage of this kind of magical thing that comes with having this 
space where we have permission to be someone else or to imagine a totally different um, plot, totally different world. Uh, I mean, France, you've already said, you know, you could, you could practice being more decisive by yes. playing a character who's more decisive. But it reminds me, I didn't think this conversation was going to go in this direction, but I used to work, a long time ago, I used to work for the oil company Shell. And Shell is reasonably famous for doing scenario planning. Yeah, the idea of scenario planning is you're, you're trying to think about the challenges the business is facing over, over the long term which for an oil, the oil industry is 20 to 50 years. I mean, these are very long-term scenarios because the infrastructure lasts a long time. And so, you know, I worked in this scenarios team for a few years. It's a very interesting place to work. But one of the things that was very powerful about these scenarios is that they were, they were quite imaginative uh, spaces. That instead of having to look a colleague in the eye and go, your strategy sucks. Instead, you could say, well, I think that this strategy would really work in, in this scenario, but in this other scenario we've been talking about, I think it, you know, it would be a problem. Do you think it would work? And it's a much safer place for people to disagree about fundamental challenges the business was facing. And I've seen that in using scenarios with other businesses and other organizations. Um, and, and I think that is partly that you're in this imaginative space. You're talking about the future. It's not real. And so you can have better, sometimes can have better conversations because it's not real. And I do think that, you know, it's really interesting because I started picturing my mind, you know, you could do this just with a purely improv approach or you could do this with a game approach. And I think you actually get something different in each. If you do it with a purely improv approach, the thing about improv is unless you are coming in with audience suggestions or something like that, Everything is built out of what the players are bringing in. And the reason that doesn't seem like the real world is it lacks that element of randomness and chance that gameplay brings. And the thing about it is you could do something where you're like, well, we're going to flip a coin now. But what's missing and where the strategy really comes in is, at least in Dungeons & Dragons, you can tell me about other systems, so much of it is about the preparation you make before you get to that critical die roll how you set up the situations that you have advantage or you have more modifiers or what have you. So chance and randomness are there, but so is preparation and strategy. And you have to combine all those things together to accurately simulate the real world. And, and you know, what I, what I like about how it plays out in role-playing games, uh, sort of connecting all these comments and I to, into this, this, this notion of, of iteration. But when, when, one is, when one is sort of thinking about how things could play out in your own mind's eye, let's say. I'm going to do, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Um, it is done without really consequences. You have to Im also imagine the consequences when you're scenarioing out that way. So I'm like, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to take this one, I'm going to do that strategy. I'm going to be, I'm going to be tough for here. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be more, more encouraging over here. But all of it is in your own mind. Then you actually have to do it. And I'm talking about the real world now. Like you have a business meeting and you're, you're executed and, and you see what happens. In a game, you have to do it too, and consequences follow. They follow, I mean, it's a, it's a logic dictated perhaps by your, your fellow players and by, and by a dungeon master, but nonetheless, you're iterating, you're, you're testing new, new ways, new methods, new approaches. Should we storm the castle? We could try that. Oh, well, that didn't work. Okay, well, next time around, should we storm the castle? Well, 
why don't we do this and this first to kind of like this, because last time we really screwed up this way. So you, you have this, to me, it is huge because when I carry that, when I, I carry so much of that thinking with me in work that I do now uh, within the Medici group where iteration is the key. Can you make decisions and take the consequences of those decisions and unlearn something? So the next time around, you're at a somewhat different place. That's fascinating. Like that. It really is about decision-making. I mean, we talk in, in role-playing, we talk in improvisation about the choices you make. Choices are decisions. That's and right. what we have in the form of these games is a very rich and emotionally resonant environment in which you're making a lot of decisions very quickly and getting feedback right yeah, away, absolutely. which is why it's a compressed learning experience. It, it, it really is. And, uh, and now that you put it that way, I'm like, should it be a role-playing game more like real-worldy? <laughs> like uh, <laughs> like uh, Shell, the role-playing game, for instance, if we <laughs> picked up on you said that. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's interesting that I have seen some um, kind of some office role-playing games, but they're all, they're kind of satirical. They're not, <laughs> they're not designed to be serious. They're the, right. The, is designed to be sort of jokish, but um, but I yeah maybe that could work, or maybe that would just be hellish. I don't know. Well, you know, we could what we could do again. This is breaking news. We're recording this right now, but what we could do is we could work on something together. We could try it out. A dungeon master and two players, uh, it would work. We could try gaming out. Well, this is the this is the startup simulation, or this is the innovation simulation, and just try it because again, it's that combination of a set of rules with the ability to gain advantage and apply uh, strategy and forethought mixed in with the chance and randomness of the die roll and the need to rapidly react. Wow, but also the villain, right? So the beholder, like, I mean, like the reason it kind of works is because you got the beholder monster coming in or whatever it is, the vampire. Big bad the... evil guy. That's the term <laughs> that they like to use in the forums. B-B-E-G. Yeah, yeah, nothing really. That, that could work. Could I mean, it could be you know that could be Microsoft. That could be Amazon. I mean, they, that'd be somebody out there. It could could be the European Commission or the or the you know the Securities European Exchange Commission. Commission. There's, always, there's always somebody out there who's going to be willing to crush your hopes and dreams, even in a business simulator. Well, I think that this is an idea that we should toy around with. We can do it offline. We don't need to design it now. That would truly be a remarkable and, and wonderful, compelling audio. But you know, we could probably do that in an offline way. I think before we close out, let's talk about one topic that you mentioned when we were preparing for this, Tim. And by preparing, I mean talking for three minutes before we started recording. But the topic you brought up, which I think is an important one, is the role of role playing during the pandemic. Because interestingly enough, France, you mentioned it's been an impetus for you to play again. Tim, you're playing regularly. I'm playing regularly. And it's just interesting to sort of reflect on the role it's played, literally, in our lives as we are now all separated from each other. I have, for me, it's been oh, really important. To, I'll let you go first, France. No, 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 no Tim, go, go, Tim, Tim. You go, are Tim. too polite. You are going to go, speak. Tim. Yeah, you're British. After all, you're so. the only one here who is a knight of the British Empire. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's been really important. I've uh, been trying to be more conscious just the last couple of years to, to make time for gaming. 
I have been playing fairly regularly with old friends really throughout, you know, ever since I, ever since I was 12. But a couple of years ago, I just said, look, are you really like this? You should make time for gaming every week if possible. It's worth it. It's one of the things you most enjoy. Um, so I was doing that already. There was a slight hiatus. And then when lockdown came in the UK in late March, immediately the group of friends I like to play with, we were like, okay, right. Someone's got to figure out how to do this online. Let's set up a game. And we were, you know, different people were trying to work out how to do it. So the first person who, the first, who ran a game used Roll20, which is a, a quite a popular yeah. piece of software. Uh, what we have found more recently is Discord works really well. So I, I saw a, a great post of Sly Flourish, who has lots of cool gaming advice. He had a piece of advice as to how to run a game on Discord. Uh, and I, I hadn't used Discord before. It's apparently a very popular app for chat during video games, online video games. But we found it worked really well because you can switch between different channels very straightforwardly. You can change people's aliases. So people can have the name of their characters. Uh, the... the Dungeon Master can very quickly say, okay, just come into the side room for a second. Um, you can have those secret conversations, really effortless. You can post maps. You can play music. If you have the right plugin, you can roll dice. And there are definitely challenges. I found as a player, I'm never quite as engaged because it's, it's, you know, it's easy to tune out. It's easy to get confused. As, as a game master... I've never been so engaged because it's so, it's such a full spectrum challenge. Like everything's trying to keep everyone involved. All of the challenges of, of running a game were just turned up to 11. Um, but overall, I, I have found it to be a very fulfilling experience. And I wouldn't say it was better than playing face-to-face, -face, but it had certain qualities that were better than playing face-to-face. -face. And it was certainly a, a lot better than not doing anything. And all this, by the way, with no video, we all just did it over audio. And that seemed to work really well for us. So that's been my experience. But what about you guys? Well, um, I want to basically say ditto to a lot of the things that you said. I, I did not know about Discord. So that is something I want to check out. It was, uh, <clears throat> for us, actually, it was a reinvigoration. I, I've been wanting to play. Um, we had a, we had a, we had a, a couple of years we played very intensely when I traveled, when I did a lot, a lot of speaking all over the world, it was very easy to just kind of stop by Sweden and, 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 and run a session there or people would come over to New York. Uh, but, but it was, but you know, it was still a pretty big production. Nonetheless, it's not something you do. Such a luxury, isn't it? I'm going to fly from New York to Sweden to run a game. Fantastic. It's, it's, it is a luxury. It, it, it is. I, I, nothing about that was taken for granted. We cherished, every one of those uh, times was really quite magical. But eventually, with, with kids and everything else, it sort of just started uh, petering out. And, um, and what the pandemic did was say, why on earth are we not doing this? Let's try it. It, it, it comes at a time when in, in the business that I have is exploding. So, uh, you know, I, I, um, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's not like we can do this every week. I, I would love to do it every week. But we try to do it every other week. Uh, we are somewhat successful at that. 
And it's just a true game changer. I mean, Zoom, it, is it the same? No. Is it, but it is better in some dimensions. I mean, even with the chat box at Zoom and the breakout rooms there, um, it, it, it works better than it usually does in, in real life to have these side conversations. You're sending notes and so on to each other, uploading maps. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of things that you can't really do in the same way in person. Um, of course, it's not the same as being in person, but it's better than not playing at all. So it, it restarted our entire um, campaign and game. And, um, and I, I, I think that's one of, the, one, of, one of the positives out of all the negatives that are coming out of this. That's one of the positives. Yeah, and so from my own experience, uh, we've been, I've been playing a, a number of different games. The prim one primary game, everyone's here locally, and we would tend to meet in the same place every time. And my friend Ben's house, he has a nice area where they have you know, a giant collection of figurines. Like anytime there was a battle, we'd just go over and pick another figurine out. And so we would have all the minis that we possibly needed. And what happened was at first we didn't play and then eventually everyone sort of started suffering from withdrawal symptoms and we decided we would try to make it work. And we use Roll20 and Zoom as a combination. So we use Roll20 because it makes it relatively easy to have the dice rolling and to have the initiative counter and to have a virtual tabletop. But the audio for Roll20 is horrendously bad. And Zoom just works. And so we use Zoom for the audio. We, don't not, we tend not to use the video. It tends to be just audio. People are focused on the map. As a dungeon master, I would agree with you. You have to be really on your game. And part of it is also sort of altering and choosing the right kinds of adventures. So the adventure I'm DMing right now is more of an outdoor adventure. And that's good because traditional dungeon crawling and mapping is very difficult on a virtual tabletop. Mm -hmm. You have to do a lot <clears> in <throat> advance. That's not what I want to do. It's having more of an outdoor adventure where you'll, you'll go to the tabletop for tactical resolution, but you could do most of the rest in the theater of the mind is probably the best approach for me. Now, of course, the question I'd ask everyone is, so when the pandemic is over, are you going to continue to play virtually or are you going to continue to play in person? For those of us who are local, the answer is simple. We're, of course, going to go back to in person whenever we can. It's something where what we're doing right now is a nice substitute, but we want the original thing. But for you, France, given that we're talking about a group of players in Sweden, I would imagine that, you know, for the sake of continuation, from now on out, you guys are going to be virtual and you'll occasionally have the, the very special in-persons. I, it's like the rest of the world. Uh, I like to say the world is becoming hybrid and um, I don't, I don't, I don't see us going back to where we were in work or in how we hang out with our, uh, with our friends. And certainly when it comes to playing, uh, I foresee this lasting for a very long time. So it's a, it's a blessing in many ways. I think the hybrid is, is the word. Uh, I can certainly see, one of the things, you know, one of the possibilities I'd love to explore is to be able to just agree with, you know, one player or two players, hey, we're just going to dial in, we're going to have a game for an hour or 90 minutes, super easy, doesn't require any big pre-commitment, but we can just do all those side quests and, and set up nice little bits of backstory and flashbacks and all of this kind of stuff that would just be too much of a performance to get together and do it. And if you tried to take time out of the main game, people would just be sitting around. So I can imagine doing that sort of thing. 
or alternatively playing online and then saying, okay, we're all going to get together at Christmas. We're going to have a, a big all day game with all the characters you we've been playing with online. We know these characters, but it's going to be extra special because we'll be there physically. Uh, and that's partly because different players have different levels of comfort with, yeah. with getting together. Some people are ready mm-hmm. to get together now. They feel it's safe enough and others are like, it's too soon. The virus is still out there. So we're just having to make sure everyone's included and everyone's accommodated and, and we're going to figure it out, I'm sure. I love that because part of what I picked up on, Tim, is this notion of, hey, let's not just look at this pandemic as something that's an obstacle. Let's look at it as an opportunity. What are the things that we can do because of the change in our circumstances, the change in format and medium that we couldn't do before? And I love that. Now, before we go, because I know we're almost up on the time that I set aside, but I do want to close with something for all the listeners, something that's very personal. So why don't you guys talk about which character you played that is your favorite character? What is the nature of that character? Why was oh, that character your favorite? <laughs> I can go first if you guys need a little time to talk and think about yeah, it. Yeah, you bring that one up. So you, you go for it, Chris. All right. So in one of the campaigns I completed last year, which was a campaign that ran until uh, probably, I think, level seven. might have been level seven. Uh, it was, so my character I played was Mandrake Darkwood. Mandrake Darkwood was an Eladrin sorcerer. So he is a, an elf with a sort of fey element to him. And he was both a sorcerer and a warlock. So in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, there is multi-classing. And so there's a lot of mechanical advantages to multi-classing into warlock for sorcerers. And his story was that he had just been a normal, happy fellow until one day he and his little brother were out and his little brother was kidnapped. And that was what caused him to decide to sell his soul to get the power to find his brother and and wreak vengeance on those who stole his brother from him. But of course, he was also a hero, so he was always focused on helping those who were in need. And in the case of our particular party, we had you know, a, a, a situation where there was an evil Lord who was trying to take over things. And so a lot of the focus of the campaign was actually trying to find ways to save NPCs. So it was a great experience. I used a sort of, what I call it, a classic down the middle of the road, uh, uh, British accent, sort of the BBC style British accent, as opposed to more of a Cockney or more of a high uh, highfalutin tough sort of thing. So it's just middle of the road. I, I do think for whatever reason, I love doing probably very badly British accents when I play. <laughs> I'm sure they're wonderful. I'm sure they're brilliant. You know, the, the character who's sprung to mind, this is, I, I run, I'm the, the DM, the, the referee more often than the, than the players. The character who sprung to mind, it's a slightly strange one because I only played him once. Um, and I can't even remember his name, but it, it, was, it was the Oxford versus Cambridge uh, inter-varsity role-playing competition, which, of course, is an absurd idea, like the idea that you could do competitive role-playing. Ah. So, we, so we I drove over um, to Cambridge. And my girlfriend was on the team at the time as well. We drove over together, and um, I played this guy who was kind of a bit like um, Cyrano de Bergerac. He was this sort of... He had this larger-than-life personality, wielded a sword, French accent, just completely outrageous in his behavior. And about halfway through the 
the scenario, he accidentally, he tried to set fire to the print works because somebody had, a newspaper had published scurrilous rumors about him. Um, but he didn't realize how flammable ink was and the whole building went up and he died in this, in this conflagration. And that was fine. It was fun. Uh, but at the end of the, the day, um, the referees sort of now, you know, handed out points and, and they, they said, well, basically you get zero points because, you know, you died stupidly before you even got started. But then they also had a vote for who the player's favorite character had been. And the players said, well, actually, your, your stupid, outrageous guy who died halfway through, he was actually the most memorable character in the, in the game. So he's our favorite. And that was kind of fun because it was, it, it was just an expression of what we've been talking about really throughout this conversation of the different ways that you can enjoy a game. And the idea that from one perspective, you failed because you were supposed to kind of solve the mystery, solve the problems. You didn't get anywhere near it and you died um, stupidly. But from another perspective, you had loads of fun. You had this big character that we all remember and we all love. So, so, and, that's, and both of those perspectives are absolutely valid. And what, you know, it's not so often in life that you can recognize that. Isn't that just life yeah. after all, right? Do we say oh, well, we can just look at the net worth and decide whether or not you won the game or is part of the game of life actually enjoying it along the way? I mean, I think that that's a, a very valuable lesson along with the other lesson, which is apparently the ink is mightier than the sword. Quite <laughs> so. It I'd is. <clears throat> um, although I, I rarely, I've rarely been a player. I, I don't, there, there's one character that, that kind of stands out, but none as much as an NLP that was part of a campaign that lasted many, many years that we had. And this was, uh, and so that is, this NLP is really my favorite character, way beyond anyone that I've used as a player uh, throughout the years. And um, her name um, uh, was Deidre. She was a princess of a, um, really a ruthless king and a very ex exceptional um, swordsman, I should say, uh, uh, saber. Like she, she was able to slice many enemies uh, with, uh, with, with both of her sabers, both her hands. Very sensual. Uh, really enjoyed the company of men, women, anything in between. And exceptionally conniving. So she managed to, to, to uh, become part of the player's group. And the amount of both excitement and havoc that she wrecked through the years was exceptional. <laughs> and for that reason, um, she is pretty much the most memorable NLP that I think that we had. Certainly one that I enjoyed playing the most. The complexity level was very, very high. Um, but I, I do think about that sometimes. Sounds like she is just you, but in drag. That's exactly what I think. Dual wielding sabers, sleeping with everyone in sight. Uh, what well, did, hold on. How did, what, well, how did her story end? Did she get a happy ending? What exactly happened with Deirdre? She, uh, well, she ended up in a coma, and the players actually ended up in a world in, in her mind, which was a game that lasted, actually, that was a component of the, of the world that lasted several years. Uh, where um, the the it was entirely it was basically played by her rules, 
And then once they exited out of that, um, uh, ultimately, I think she found her, 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 her story ended poorly. But, um, but, um, but not until she'd really taken everybody for, uh, for a, uh, a very, very long ride. <laughs> well, as we heard with Cyrano earlier, because that's what I'm going to refer to him as, Tim, since we don't have a name. It is not necessarily the ending that defines the character, but rather all the things they do along the way. And just like at the end of the day, tabletop role playing, we're not trying to achieve some sort of goal. We're trying to have an experience along the way and really feel something. And that is, I think, at its essence, the thing that makes it so special. Yeah, I think that's right. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for really willing to take time out of your Sundays to appear. Uh, I know that we've been looking forward to this for a long time. Hopefully it met your expectations. And I'm looking forward to publishing this episode and hearing from our fellow Silicon Guild members, because I think that I hope that there are a few closeted role players among them and that we might eventually get a group together and play. Uh, I look forward to that. This has been such Sounds fun. Great. Thanks, guys. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, everyone, this has been the Chris Yeh podcast. And on behalf of Franz Johansson and the most exalted Tim Harford, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> we hope you tune in again soon.